Nigerian author Chigozi Obioma speaks many languages, but he wanted to unlearn one of them. You'll find out why. Also, the personal story behind an orchestra of minorities, his book, and hear what insights Chigozi has of American culture. Your second book, An Orchestra for Minorities, when I have read that beginning section about the woman at the bridge and the poultry farmer, and he comes and he throws his precious chicken to show her the danger of jumping over into the river, the way you use the language made me feel as if I was him and desperate to stop this person from doing something harmful to themselves, that they would sacrifice something precious just to prove their point. I have read that this story, you know, people talk about you using Greek mythology, but there's also something very personal in this story. Can you talk about your friend who went to get educated abroad and it didn't work out so well? Yeah, uh you know, I, I went to Cyprus myself. Uh, it, was a, it was a very weird trajectory for an African because the, the usual uh, destination, if we were to leave uh, Nigeria, for instance, to go to school, would always be not generally the U.S., actually, because your fees here are too expensive, you know. Nobody totally. can pay. <laughs> It's terrible. No, but even even Obama had to finish paying his his stuff when he became president. So it's usually the UK, you know, that we go to, or somewhere in Europe. But then I ended up somehow in in North Cyprus, and uh, I was lucky. You know, I had uh, my dad had just retired from his bank job, which he had for like thirty five years. So he had a relatively good settlement from, from the bank. So I went to Cyprus with quite, a, a, you know, a reasonable amount of resources that I needed. But on getting there, I, I saw that quite a number of people were coming from Africa, especially Nigeria, who did not have that much resources. In fact, what little they had had been taken from them by agents who were like very uh, duplicitous and and fraudulent. Scammers. Yes, basically scammers and grifters. And so this guy came uh, one year into my stay there, and he was uh, already from the airport. We went to pick him up. And long story short, we found out that he was in Germany before, and then he was deported, you know, on an alleged crime, uh, a, a frame-up, according to him. So he had returned to Nigeria and was coming to Cyprus to try and, you know, get back on his feet. But then he'd been deceived so badly that he had sold everything he had. So he came there finding that this was, in fact, a lie. Mm. And he had, you know, somebody has made their way with his money. So he became so psychologically defeated that he was basically gone, you know, by, by the time we met him. So a few days after he arrived, you know, we started looking for him. We discovered that he had, you know, drank so much and fallen from the attic of this tall building, mm. you know, to his death. Uh, so it was ruled by the authorities as suicide. So it, it was in the aftermath of that event that I began to, uh, I was shaken by it. So I, I started to think to myself, 
how can I retrace this guy's journey? You know, because he had mentioned that the, the major reason why he came to Cyprus was because he was engaged to this lady and he wanted to make money quickly to go back and, and be with her. So I started to ask myself the question, what would the dynamic between the both of them have been to have made him, you know, make that sacrifice? Of course, he didn't know that he was going to die in Cyprus. But anyway, it was a sacrifice that, you know, was worthy in my mind of, of a kind of fictionalization. So the novel really uh, was inspired by, by that experience. Mm. Because the character in the novel does fall in love with the woman and he does go to try to make himself wealthy. There's a little bit to me in high school, we read the great Gatsby <laughs> and he would, you know, he tried to get rich to get the woman because there's a class difference between the poultry farmer and his, the love of his life. The book is obviously amazing. You have won many awards while I know our audience is going to devour it. I think what I'd like to talk to you about more with the book as a background theme is this idea of class differences, because I know you can speak on Nigerian class differences. And now that you live in Nebraska and spent time in the U.S., your insights into our culture while teaching us about Nigeria would be so helpful. So, I mean, this character did not have money. Yeah. And then he was rejected, can't marry the woman you love because you do not have an education. Right. So I don't necessarily feel like that happens in America per se, but it may be because of the class I live in. Mm -hmm. But in Nigeria, is it often that people will be, re suitors are rejected by the family because of status? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I I, I see Nigeria, I conceive of it uh, in theory as a kind of a fiefdom situation. Oh. Uh, so we have a ruling class that's impenetrable. So people often ask, why is it that Nigeria, for instance, does not progress, you know, despite the <laughs> wealth uh, of resources and people that it has. It is because there's a gridlock there mm. and that ruling class have locked it in. So upward mobility is a very difficult thing, sometimes even impossible. <laughs> and in the novel, as you see, the, the desire to for upward mobility. In fact, the attempt of it becomes the undoing of Chinon. So, so yes, the, the situation is very much like that. And people do look down on you. If you're not educated, you are like seen as basically the wretched of the earth for lack of a better term. Mm. So I would see a kind of a parallel uh, of that in the US being, I mean, Say people in the inner cities, you know, my first experience of America was going to grad school at, at Michigan and the University of Michigan. You know, so I, I volunteered with a, a few of my cohorts to teach at a kind of inner city school in Detroit. Oh. It was mostly black children as well as Arab ones. So it was a mixture of both uh, ethnicities. And you see privation there, I mean, Detroit is known for being a kind of a decadent city in America. <laughs> so you do see, it might not be extreme uh, material lack, but there is in some ways a kind of a, should I say, there is a lack that is much more psychological. Mm. People don't feel like they are where they are, where they are supposed to be or that they are 
you know, the country as a whole has been fair enough to them. So that in itself is a kind of poverty. Uh, and then in the rural areas, uh, like, you know, so I live in Lincoln, outside of here uh, and Omaha, the other big city in Nebraska, there really is all, uh, you know, uh, just, I mean, they're not necessarily poor, but rural places. And some of them are really poor. You know, you see white, quote unquote, hillbillies, mm. you know, all over the place. You know, so these people too are in a class of their own. You know, uh, they are looked down upon. There is uh, all kinds of uh, assumptions that are made about them as well. So you do have, you know, that kind of class situation in America. Mm. But as a whole, this is <clears throat> an extraordinarily wealthy country. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's just, it's a very wealthy country. I mean, I think that Americans do not understand the level of comfort generally that you have here. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes I feel as if our society is just uh, complains about itself so much it forgets uh, the good things. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's human nature. Like when, um, you know, your past, your immediate past president was president, mm. a lot of my colleagues, I, I, I know some people who used to be literally sick day by day, like, you know, from looking at the news and all that. And it was kind of very difficult for me. I mean, I, I see, I understand he was an embarrassment, but I just could not make sense of how the tweet of the president is what causes this much damage, <laughs> you know, on people's psyche. I mean, people have problems. I, I, I know a family who, families in Nigeria who, Family of four, and all they have, uh, they earn like $25 a month. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like, they don't, the idea that they can even, uh, I mean, what is happening in the in the White House of Nigeria? They don't spend even a second thinking about it. They're thinking, okay, how do we eat? How do we clothe? They are praying every day, please, God, don't let any of us fall sick, because if that happens and it's a serious thing, it's dead. You know, and then, you know, you have people who have a good job, they're professors, and they have everything basically that they need. And so they have time to worry about how somebody is tweeting, you know. So yes, there was a disconnect and they look at me, man, this guy is not angry at, at this thing going on. I'm like, I mean, I see that. Yeah, I mean, I'm disappointed that the president of a country like America was behaving the way he's behaving, you know. Uh, but I just could not bring myself to feel that kind of visceral anger and rage that they had. It just, you know, because again, there was this gulf between <laughs> between us, basically. Well, between your your experience yeah. and what have you seen of the world, yeah. and this is why. If there's somebody who's listening, I really would like a program where we can send every American to another country for at least three months. Yeah. No, no. Yes. I tell my students that all the time when they ask, do you, you know, what should we do after this? Do we go straight into grad school? I said, no, 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 no. Go, go somewhere. Go and leave. Go somewhere. <laughs> Six months. Gap year, even if you if you want. Yeah, it's good. I totally agree. Well, you see other ways of living, yeah. other ways of thinking. Yeah. There's a scripture in the in the Christian Bible that talks about man 
and silver needing each other to become mm. shinier or sharper. Sharper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Iron, sharpener, iron, yes. Yes. And I've always thought about that for us. How are we to know who we really are as a country unless we go out of our country? Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, there's uh, even in my writing, I discovered that when I got to Cyprus, my vision of Nigeria became even clearer. Wow. Yeah, and sharper because now I, I could see it in totality, you know, uh, before when, uh, in fact, let, let me even come a, a bit, you know, much more smaller uh, on a smaller plane of things. So I was born into this family of, of many children, uh, an eccentric family. <laughs> and I took for, for a long time, I did not even, you know, see my siblings as anything special, you know. I didn't even know that I actually, I mean, I, I liked them, of course, but I didn't know to the extent to which I actually, you know, had this closeness with them until I left. So I left uh, and then, you know, it, it just occurred to me that I did not uh, at that point have a friend mm. because, it, you know, for a long time, I had not thought that there was even any need to have a friend. Because you had brothers and sisters. Yeah. Yeah. So we were self-sufficient and everything, any kind of person you wanted, you had the guy who plays game the sister who cooks, the one who likes violin, just about anybody, <laughs> you know, he was, <laughs> was in the family. You know, so that was surprising to me. So I was able to appreciate them better oh, and understand God. them more because I had gone then. Mm -hmm. I could see how that extrapolates to understanding your culture and your country better. I I spent a tiny bit of time in uh, Switzerland just being there and you wouldn't think it's much different than, you know, Seattle, Washington, but it was enough difference for me to see what they do well and what, what we do well and what I didn't like and appreciate. So when I came home, I was so thankful for the freedom in this country. You could move about so easily. And I understand the culture here, so I don't have to second guess myself all the time like I did in another culture. You have to do a lot of thinking because mm -hmm. you could offend people. <laughs> However, being exposed to different ways of thinking and seeing different types of people, right. that was valuable education. This podcast, like so many programs on NWPB, is brought to you courtesy of donors. People who watch and listen to NWPB for thought-provoking programs like Traverse Talks, People who give what they can to pay for current programs and technology for future programs. You can join them. Donate any amount that is right for you at nwpb.org. Speaking back to your education in Cyprus, you have a piece that was written in the Paris Review, I believe, and yeah. about wishing you could unlearn a language. At Chigozi, you are very talented in language. Like, how many do you know? Five? Four languages, yes. Four languages. <laughs> and it almost seemed like you picked up Turkish quickly. But when you were there in school, it wasn't exactly a blessing. Yeah. Can you tell us why? Well, so I think one of the things that I wasn't very prepared for when I got there was I wasn't prepared for the fact that 
even though it's a you know not Cyprus and all of Cyprus was a a Commonwealth country, most people did not speak English, you know. So they spoke Turkish in the Turkish part and Greek in the Greek side. I mean the Greeks, uh, which the, the European side more than the Turkish side knew English. Anyway, so there was then a kind of a desperation to uh, interact more with people outside of the university campus. So so that desperation led to uh, a, a pocket of us trying as much as possible to learn. It was a very difficult language. Uh, Turkish is closer to Farsi and Arabic in a way. So one uh, during one summer, I think my fourth summer, I had made a good friend who wanted me to go to Turkey with him. So it was uh, it was something that no, no none of the Africans would do because in Cyprus itself, the Turkish students were very racist towards us. They were, you know, some of it was born out of, as I would uh, understand later on, just the novelty. Hmm. Uh, like in, when I eventually went to Turkey, uh, I was in the west of the country and really I met people who had never seen a black person before. They've only seen on TV. They've not been or, or sometime in the distance, but, they, they, you know, it really was the first time that they would come in contact and touch a black person. It just... They just haven't seen that before, you know. Uh, so they had uh, a lot of misconceptions, but some of them were uh, from Istanbul and some of the, you know, major metropolitan. So they were knowingly racist. Mm. So you have folks like that who will make comments about, you know, all sorts of things and call you monkey and, and whatnot. So anyway, so, but until I learned the language, until I went to Turkey for that two months uh, a holiday, I didn't sometimes know what people were saying about me mm-hmm. and my fellow Africans. But after I returned back from Turkey to Cyprus, and now I wasn't under this protection of my friend and his family, I just found it was almost like a miracle that I could understand most of what was being said about me, you know, and to me. Mm-hmm. And so it became very difficult because, you know, some of, sometimes you will be in the bus and, you know, people will be talking about how you must be smelling because you're a black person and you've just come in. And the next thing you see, people are laughing, you know, they're moving away from you, you know, and you could be, you know, more well-dressed than they were, you know. So it was a blatant in-your-face kind of racism that was sometimes very painful. Mm. So uh, at some point, it started to really hurt me, uh, you know, and I just, you know, I started to to wonder if one cannot learn a language because there was, in fact, some kind of uh, liberty in ignorance. Mm-hmm. Ignorance is bliss. Yes. Yeah, that would, oh God. Mm. I'm just uh, empathizing with you all of a sudden and then, hearing everything they're saying erodes your sense of self and self-esteem. How did you cope with that? So uh, that's a good question. So there's there's something about our upbringing in a place like Nigeria, not, not just Nigeria. I, I know for sure of most of West Africa that creates a kind of resilience in us that makes it in some ways very difficult to 
you know, again, uh, I think it goes back to having seen difficult situations. Mm. I would say that I'm a bit lucky. I come from a kind of a middle-class family, so I never really experienced in Nigeria, like the kind of privation that others uh, saw. But I, you know, it was always very present around me. So, and I, so I understand that sometimes things you know, there are bad people who want to hurt you for no just reason, mm. you know. So it was, you know, so I would get angry sometimes. I There were few times when I fought with people, you know, like actual physical fights with Turkish, you know, men. But uh, usually we just laughed it off, mm. you know, and, and insulted them back. You know, it, w- w- one of the funniest part of it was once... In fact, a couple of times, but at least I saw this happen once. You go to the streets, you know, and you see beggars, people who are crippled, who are like on the streets, you know, and, and you're well-dressed, you're, you're going and you say, oh, I feel sorry for this guy. He's like a, a beggar, a crippled guy on the street. And I give him money and he calls me a slave. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So even if Obama were to be walking on the street, you know, so so this guy is not even he's he's have to like he's not even at my level of anything, and yet he insults me. So and I'm like, I just helped you. <laughs> <laughs> so some of it was just irrational and didn't make sense. There were sometimes when it just was stupid, and you know, I would just feel like. This guy is not worthy of my time, you know. Mm. There was one incident that really broke my heart, actually. Mm. It was, uh, you know, I was with a friend of mine who was a lady, a Nigerian lady. And we were, like, waiting at a bus stop and for uh, a bus to come. And this trucker guy was just driving past. And, he, you know, he just stopped and started shouting slurs at her, you know, calling her all kinds of names and asking if she would come and, you know, have sex with him or something, you know, that very vulgar, insulting stuff. And we didn't even, what is funny is that we didn't even respond to him, you know, because those kind of people could be very violent. Mm. And he got mad that we ignored him and he spat on the girls. And, you know, we were so free, we chased after the car, but the guy, you know, just sped off. So I, I was haunted by that for a long time that... There was nothing we could have done to mm. avenge, you know, that kind of injustice. So that was the kind of, you know, racism that you see in a place like that. Mm-hmm. Wow, I can't. <laughs> There'd be a lot of self-talk. I mean, I'm just trying to think if I was your your friend. It's super demeaning to be spat on. It is. It takes away so much of your sense of self, and then you have to really work hard to build that back up again, even if you don't even know this person. Yeah. It's so easy to be cruel, isn't it? Yeah. Ah, so that was your time in Cyprus and Turkey. Did you know you can find us on NPR's podcasts? Just look up Traverse Talks on the NPR website and enjoy. Back to your book, An Orchestra for Minorities. The interesting way that it's narrated, I would like you to talk about how you use this spirit, this chi, and how important that is in Nigerian culture. 
So the chi is the index of divinity in every individual, according to the Igbo cosmology, this group of people in the east of Nigeria. Which are an ancient people, right? Like, yes. There's like kingdoms from thousands of years ago. Right, right, absolutely. So my name, for instance, uh, is, is prefixed with, uh, with chi, so chi gozi. So it is uh, a common name in, in Igbo. Uh, so it is because of uh, the chi is uh, the central figure in the you know world view of the Igbo people. So it is a, a spirit that ensouls you, and after the death of an individual, the aspiration, uh, the chi transcends. It goes onwards to embody other uh, people. So it's a reincarnating spirit. Mm. It never dies. So it often circles around a, a particular clan or an extended family. Uh, it is believed, for instance, that I am the incarnate of, of, of one of my mom's uncles. The chi that ensouled him is the same one that is within me right now. So at the death of a person, the chi uh, gives a kind of an account in this called celestial court to the big god the number one the, the big god and its subordinates and and so this is where the story is told so the story begins in some ways from the end as the foothold as a stepping pad by which we launch the story so the chinonso's chi chinonso is the main character his chi is at this uh temple at, at, at this court and is telling the story and therefore looking back you know, through the life that this guy has lived and how he has arrived to that point where, you know, at the end of the story where he, he is. Mm -hmm. Without spoiling it. Yeah. Giving an account. It's a beautiful and unique and culturally significant way to tell a story. It is deep. Why did you choose to tell it through a chi? <laughs> That's a, a, a good question. So I wanted to cover what I saw as a gap in African, modern African literature. So I had looked and there wasn't a cosmological novel in the realm of, say, uh, Danche's Infano, which, mm. you know, explores the Judeo-European, you know, Judeo-Christian uh, idea of hell and the afterlife, you know. And I, I thought that, you know, I would want to write something, given that, you know, across Africa, we have very interesting cosmologies, and the chi is is eminently interesting. <laughs> so, but also uh, on a craft basis, uh, even in my first novel, I always try to uh, do something that I think uh, you know I haven't really seen people doing, or at least uh, that it feels fresh in a way. So, in, in the fisherman, for instance, I tell this story. Uh, by association with animals, you know, mm -hmm. different animals. And and so the story is composed through this montage of different other figures. Uh, but so here, I wanted that. So I, I wanted a, a character, a narrator who can tell the story and break all the boundaries of point of view. So the chi is at once a third person narrator, but also a first person narrator, because it's also telling a story about itself. Its history, uh, the times when it has lived before, the things it has experienced and witnessed in the past. So, so the cheese is telling a story of of itself, 
but also the story of its host. And sometimes, because it is addressing, uh, you know, a, a, a jury, uh, sometimes it, it, it even uh, tells a story in the second person. So, so I wanted to do all of that uh, all at once in the novel. <laughs> you wanted to make it simple. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it isn't as complicated as it sounds. I think it's, it's kind of a straightforward narrative. <laughs> yes, it plays out beautifully. And it makes me wonder, well, I know you have a deep sense of Nigerian culture and the spiritualism of some of the things in your culture so I'm curious, what is your take on spiritualism? Are you, do you follow more Igbo mm. style? Are you Christian? Because I read that Nigeria is like split in two as far as religion, yeah. Islam and Christianity. I am a Christian, in fact, but I'm, I'm deeply interested and curious about the uh, different African religions. I think that uh, in a way I am practicing both, in fact, in a way. I mean, I, I do believe in the chi, actually, <laughs> you know, at least to some extent. Uh, yeah, but I was born a Christian. My, you know, I would say that my dad, for instance, and my mom, born again Christian. So mm. they are even more spiritual. Yeah, so that's my, uh, that would be my, uh, you know, religious belief. But again, I'm, I generally, in my life, I believe in, what I like to call provisional thinking. So which is, I constantly try to challenge my views, you know, so that I do not end up as an ideologue. So I am constantly questioning my assumptions and the things that I understand. So it is very difficult because I, I think that it's easy to, you know, just fall into a group and start, you know, or group think and, and say, okay, this is how, these things are, and, and I must concur and follow this. So because of that, you know, I dabble into quite a number of things. Chigozi, are you dabbling too because you want to understand the deep history of your Nigerian Igbo culture? I mean, and I only know on the surface, but there's like three millennia <laughs> of, of cultural history there. I, I ask because I'm I'm in my early 40s. My mother is Korean. My grandmothers, when they converted to Christianity, but before mm. that it was Buddhist and or earth and ancestral worship. Right. And I feel like there's something missing mm. in understanding each other. And when you talk about chi, mm. I feel as if chi could almost scientifically be our epigenome that's yeah, yeah. passed in through families. Like you have your uncle's chi and it's maybe mm -hmm. because of the experiences of your mother and brother and all this is in you now. Yeah. And, and I'm so sorry if I'm offending my religious no, friends. No, 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 okay. no, no, absolutely not. Okay, good. Not. But just with the lens of Christianity, it seems kind of like a small lens. Yes. And very recent. So this yeah. this book and the way you describe um, the way you try to think, it, it seems as if we all should be working harder to understand more of our ancestors and beliefs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I, you know, the, the novel is in many ways a repudiation of, of just what you're talking about, the, the, the embrace. So what, what happened in Africa uh, was very interesting. So if you if you look at other places in the world where there was colonialism, 
you know, you, you look at a place, and let me just take India as an example. They were colonized by Britain, just as, as Nigeria or Ghana were. But you find that their religion, language, culture was intact by the time the British left. <laughs> In fact, the British were part of the people who constructed the Taj Mahal, but they helped fund it in a way. So, but if you go to Africa, the uh, colonialization there was more of like a civilizing project. Mm. So it was scorched at because there was little respect for the Africans. We were black people, we were by their standard barbaric savages who, you know, had nothing uh, and no culture and nothing. Mm. So they wanted to completely wipe out the, you know, the little quote-unquote thing that we had and replace it completely. While in India, there was more of a respect for the culture. Okay, these guys had this things, <laughs> you know, let us just bring us as a compliment. So it was more complimentary than here. Mm. Than in Africa, where it was much more destructive. So, in that sense, growing up, for instance, my you know Nigerians, Igbo people, West Africans, see their own traditional religion as evil, you know. And anybody who is did not convert to Christianity was a pariah, you know. My mom's family side, for instance, did not convert to Christianity. They were probably the only one in the entire, uh, you know, district, mm. you know, and they were treated horribly. They were like outcast. Oh, do not say hello to those people. They are heathens. They are terrible human beings. When in fact, what they were do their crime was that they were imbibing the religion of their ancestors that had been there for years and years and years. So uh, if anything that I, if there was any reason for writing an orchestra of minorities, it was that I wanted to monumentalize aspects of that religion. I wanted at least to document it so that future generations or even mine or even my dad's, you know, when, when they think of, okay, ordinary religion, what was it about? Hmm. There is a resource that they can go to. So I have reconstructed most of the beliefs, even the, 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 the idea of the heaven, the afterlife. There's a whole chapter where I, I map it out completely. So that, that's what I, I tried to do in the novel. Oh, spectacular. How has it been received in Nigeria? Oh, well, it's, 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 a, it's a, a book that is very popular there. It really is. I mean, obviously, because of the economic situation of many people, there hasn't been uh, that much of, you know, it's, it's sold very well, but it, it, it doesn't sell like you have in the UK or Europe or even, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, people read it, but they just pirate it. They, you mm -hmm. know, they get soft copies of it. But yes, it's a very popular novel. It's, it's been very widely received. And, you know, I heard that the vice president, the current vice president of Nigeria, often buys it for his friends, you know. Oh, Chikosi, that's a big deal. That's amazing. Well, I'm happy that at least he reads. The <laughs> other guy who is the president does not read at all. <laughs> mm. 
The politics. Oh. Will you be taking your children to live in Nigeria? To Because a thing that happens in the States is we tend to lose our cultural identity quickly because of this idea of melting pot and just going with mm. the majority. And I really am trying hard not to do that with my children, but it's difficult when they're a quarter Korean yeah. <laughs> versus yeah. half. And I, I don't know, are your children uh, Nigerian American? Yes, they were both born here. So they're American. The, the, the thing with that is, I mean, I, I would love to move back and live there. Mm. I, I try like this summer, I'm going to spend two months there. But the thing, the thing with Ameri American children or children born here is uh, because of the, again, the comfort is going to be very, I think they are lost. Oh, fascinating. <laughs> it's, it's going to be very difficult. I mean, I, I'm sure they will appreciate their heritage, especially now that, you know, there's a lot of pride in the black culture. Mm -hmm. So they're going to appreciate that they are black. They're going to appreciate that they're African. Uh, but I think that the African part will be kind of a surface level. It's just something that they would wear artificially. You see what I'm saying? There won't mm. be like a deep investment. I mean, I hope for, for a different outcome, but this is what I think how it always goes. I see. You know, they will just have a superficial relationship they, they can tweet about being African, you know. <laughs> but they, no, they don't really want to go and live there for uh, actually experience it. You see what I'm saying? So I do, but Chagosi, I feel as if you, as an involved father, just your presence in their life, me speaking from experience, while I am 100% an American cultural product, I feel I have a sensitivity towards a different view of culture from my mother's lens. And mm -hmm. you will give that to your children so that they, I feel, will be more open and empathetic to different mm -hmm. ways of thinking and being. And you know what's interesting? Chigozi, in Nigeria, do you call people like auntie, uncle? You never call them by the first yeah, name? Yeah, yeah, we do that. We absolutely, we do that. Because it's honorific, yeah? Yes. This yes, is yes. the part your kids are going to struggle with. Is oh, yeah. I ha I could never call grown-ups by their first names. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I struggle to do that too. Yeah, yeah because we want to give them honor and respect, but in a weird way, American culture is like, no, man, I'm your best yeah. friend. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, but yeah. I'm five. <laughs> now, Ameri American culture does not allow for that. I mean, yeah, yeah, you're right. So, yeah, I, I mean, I would take them to, mm. to, to Nigeria. I, I really will. We'll see whether or not. <laughs> <laughs> if it works out for them. Exposure, because this is the way we live here, I don't think is the way the world lives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what are you working on now? So I've, I've completed a novel that is set in the 60s in Nigeria. There was a historical upheaval at that time. War. And yeah, and the characters are uh, struggling to, to navigate that. But I also have a kind of, a, a, you know, a collection of short stories that on this side that I'm working on, which some of which would be set in America because everybody's like, when are you going to write about America? <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm starting to do that too. You know, so. Oh, I, I think that's going to be amazing and fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate your insights into our culture and your 
contributions to the literary world. Thank you very much, Swain. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's been a pleasure talking with you. You're, you're so warm and, and just a delight. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. All right, you take care, my friend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Author Chigozi Obioma's latest book is An Orchestra of Minorities, and his book The Fisherman, back in 2015, was a finalist for the Man Booker Prize. Consider getting these books and others from an independent bookseller in your community. Many of them can order the books in for you. This is Traverse Talks. I'm Sue Ann Ramella. Ramella.